Good morning again, and thanks, Brennan, for sharing uh, about CSF. Great, great ministry, and certainly on a place where the gospel needs to be uh, needs to be shared a lot. Really does. I want to welcome everybody. Uh, those who are watching us online, welcome to our time together. We really appreciate you. And uh, you know what I love to hear when I when I talk to some of our folks who are at home uh, is they tell me, you know what we do? We get up, uh, we get ready, like we're going to church. We sit down. Uh, and uh, we focus our attention totally on uh, the service. And I want to encourage you, if you're uh, online with us, please do that. It's so easy to be distracted. I know when I was home a few weeks, I uh, wasn't here, and um, you know, it's just so easy to let things pull us away. But uh, I would encourage you, if you are at home, to really focus on not just the message, but the worship time and, uh, and draw your, your thoughts toward Jesus. Uh, we're in a series that we have begun uh, a few weeks ago talking about joy uh, of all things, and I don't know when you walked in the door, you kind of got hit with joy, that huge sign with joy uh, there, uh, that uh, reminds us what it's all about, but it's in the book of Philippians, uh, but we're going to jump into that in just a second. But first of all, I want you to think about, if you would, for uh, for me, uh, I want you to think about the biggest mistakes you've ever made in your life, the biggest mistake you've ever made. Now, I'm not talking about a poor investment, probably we all bought something we shouldn't have bought. Um, I'm not really talking about an accident that you may have had. I'm talking about a life-altering decision that you made, a mistake that you made. And uh, maybe it was a moment or maybe it was over a season of time that you look back on and you regret with all of your heart. Now, some of us may be thinking, well, I don't know if I can put my finger on one of those things. I'm definitely not perfect, but I haven't gone that far. I haven't really done that yet. And I say the word yet because your biggest mistake, your biggest regret may be in your future. Maybe you'll make that. We're all going to continue to make mistakes, right? But others of you are immediately going to go back and identify with that moment and that time, that event in your life. And maybe the time has, the pain has been blunted by time and distance. But when you go back there, you know exactly where it's at. It still stings a lot. And I want to encourage you, hopefully you dealt with that. I hope that you have repented of that if it was a sin not just a mistake. I think there could be some difference there. I hope that you've gone back, that you've repented of that. I hope that you've resolved it. I hope that you've repaired it if you possibly could. I hope that you've sought forgiveness from God, forgiveness from other people that you may have hurt. I hope that you've forgiven yourself. You know, I think sometimes self-forgiveness is probably the most difficult for us to accept, to be able to forgive ourselves uh, for our past and our mistakes. But oftentimes that mistake or that situation lingers and you go back there and you face new regrets and new shame and new guilt, and it's just a place that steals your joy. Well, if you have that place in your life or that time in your life, today we're going to talk about that, not to reopen it and revisit it, but more about how to have joy when you have really messed up. How to have joy when you've messed up. You know, the book of Philippians was written by the Apostle Paul who had really messed up early in his life. He had really messed up. I'm not talking about a small thing. I'm talking about a really big mistake, not just one time, but that he lived out for quite a period of time in his life. He had spent the first part of his life, especially as an adult, as a radical Jew. Not just a religious Jew, but a radical Jew who hated Christians, who actually hunted them down, imprisoned them, tortured them, trying to get them to denounce Jesus, and many of them even were put to death. How would you like to have something like that in your past? Especially now that the fact that he was a Christian, 
that now he had given his life to Christ, but he had a lot of memories of the mistakes he had made in the past. But however, he had put his past in the past, and now he had joy. Now he had joy, even looking back and acknowledging the mistakes he had made, he had joy. That is a lot to forgive yourself for. And he keeps reminding us to have joy because joy truly is a choice. Earlier in the, this uh, study, last fact that was last chapter, I think, Paul said, you have the same mindset as that of Christ Jesus. So what he tells us is that joy is a mindset. It's a mindset. If you are a Christian, you probably know what that's all about. In fact, maybe you remember back to the day that you gave your life to the Lord, and you probably did that with a lot of joy and a lot of excitement. You were, you were really pumped because this was a big decision, and you had a lot of excitement about that. You had peace about that. But after a while sometime, even maybe over time, even a, a few years, it's easy for us to kind of lose our joy in that. And we kind of settle into this complacency, a, a place in our life where we don't have the sharpness, the excitement of, of living for Jesus anymore, and we have to be intentional to reset our joy. You know, I was reading a study on joy the other day, and they said that only 10% of our joy is dependent on outward circumstances. And that's kind of interesting because we think that if everything else and people, everybody around us would change, then our joy would return or we would have joy, we'd be happier. But only 10% is dependent on outward things. The study said that 50% was dependent upon your personality type, your, whether you're optimistic or pessimistic or an introvert or extrovert. 50% depends on you, your past, what you've done, just on you, 50%. The other 40% is dependent on your mindset. It is how you decide to think and respond to circumstances, to your personality, to your you know, place in life. It's how you respond. Now, you may not be able to change your 10% of circumstances. 50% is who you are, but 40% you can control. And that's why Paul says that joy is a choice, joy is a mindset. Now, look at Paul. Paul's in prison. He can't change that. He has no idea whether he's going to live or die or how long he'll be in jail. He can't change that. Paul has a past. He made past mistakes. He can't change that. But he's determined that he has joy, and so he has a mindset of joy, and that's what he's chosen to do. Look at verse uh, Chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 4, and we're going to jump into that, uh, our Scripture this morning. Paul says, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same thing to you again, and it's a safeguard for you. So he's just going to repeat the commandment of joy. In fact, 19 times in these four chapters, Paul says to have joy. So obviously that's the theme, and he's repeating it again. I want you to have joy. No problem for me to remind you. It's an encouragement for you. Just have joy. But then immediately in verse 2, he goes off on a tangent that seems to be totally unrelated to the topic. He's going to go off on something that he hasn't dealt with so far in this book, but he identifies one of the things that kills joy, and that is religion. So if you don't understand where he's going, it's going to be a little bit distracting here, but he's going to talk about religion here. And you know, Paul knew all about religion. He knew what religion was like. You know, a, a lot of times people talk about being religious when I think what they hope to mean is, is that is they're, they're being spiritual. But there is a difference between being spiritual, being a Christian, and being religious and, and having religion. You see, Paul knew all about religion because that is what drove him to persecute the church. Paul was a religious, a radical Jew. 
And, you know, God had told the people, his people, called them to be Jewish, to be his people, but they had taken the faith he had given them or challenged them with, and they had made their own religion, a man-made religion of traditions, rules, arrogance, all those things, believing that they were the only ones that were right, everybody else was wrong, believing they were superior to everybody. And you know what? Unfortunately, we, we don't leave religion in the Bible times. Religion exists today. Religious people are not joyful people, to say the least. And sometimes we find ourselves to be religious, right? This is the attitude that you are right, everybody else is wrong, and that whatever action is necessary is justified to destroy those who disagree with you. That's the extreme sort of religion, you know? And there are various levels of this, of passion in this area, but we know that there are people in our world who are religious, who are driven to violent acts. In fact, it's even called jihad, to destroy those who they see as infidels. The terrorism we've seen in our country has been fomented by religion. That says there's only one way to believe. And if you don't believe like us, then you're wrong and you deserve to die. Now, that's the extreme form of it, right? But there's a lot of other forms of religion, and probably most of us, if you've been Christians for a while, you've probably proven yourself to be religious in some way, believing that you're the only one that's right. You know, in Indiana, I I saw this so much when I ministered up there. There were churches who believed they were the only ones going to get to heaven, just their church, not even other churches like them that believed the same thing, just their, their church would be the only ones in heaven, literally. Now, most of us aren't that extreme, but I think all of us probably think that we sometimes have the corner on truth and other people are wrong. And we kind of defend our corner and defend our beliefs, and, and, uh, and that's religion. That's what it's all about. And one thing you can say about religion is that religion is a joy killer. It's no fun to be religious. It really isn't. It's not enjoyable whenever you think you're the only one that's right. And Paul lived that life, and so he writes to warn the church in Philippi to guard against people who come in to steal their joy. Here's what he says, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Now, what in the world is Paul talking about when he talks about mutilating the flesh? Or are these people that come in to cut them up or kill them, or what what are they there for? Well, here's the thing, when Christianity began, it was a departure from the Old Testament law. It was based on the law that God had given, but the law was to train them and teach them, and Jesus came, and he freed them from the law. Doesn't mean they couldn't be good, couldn't be righteous or obedient anymore, but it was a whole new thing for them. It was available for now for Jews and Gentiles. And the church in Philippi was basically a Gentile church. So are we for the most part. So this kind of relates to us as well. But there were Jews in that day who had become Christians. Uh, They were called Judaizers, but they insisted that it was necessary to adopt all the Jewish customs in order for you to become a Christian. In other words, you had to, first of all, become a Jew, and then you could become a Christian or a follower of Jesus. And, and if you look in the book of Acts, this is argued and gone back and forth until they resolved that wasn't true, that, that that wasn't necessary, that you become a Jew first. But one of those Jewish practices in that day was circumcision. It was the physical sign of the Jewish people all the way back to Abraham. God had given Abraham this sign, this command, this outward sign, and so they were commanded to do that. And so because of that, the Jewish people thought they were so much better, so much superior. In fact, they called Gentiles unclean dogs. But what Paul says is that actually they are the dogs 
the attack dogs who come into the community to attack them and destroy them. See, the void that had been left when Paul was now in prison was being filled up by people who thought Paul were the enemy. Some of them were Christians. But they were coming in trying to impose new laws, new religion, new man-made ideas on the, the, the young churches. And so Paul's warning them not to listen to them. Now, Paul could speak on this really well, really, really good, because he had been that person himself. He had been religious. He had previously been the religious person who was right. Everybody else was wrong. Everybody else needed to die except his, himself and the people who believed like him. Back when he was doing this, he knew the Bible, he knew the law, but he didn't know Jesus and he didn't know joy. So he goes on to say, for it is we who are the circumcision who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Paul says they are not the ones who are the really chosen, it's Christians, the ones who have been set free from religion by grace that are the chosen ones of God. And because of that, now we just serve God. We don't serve the law. We serve God by His Spirit. We boast in Christ Jesus alone. We put no confidence in the flesh. It's not a fleshly sign that makes us a child of God. Our only loyalty is to Jesus Christ, not our own goodness, not our pedigree, not our background, not our, our history. You know, the Jews were really big on their pedigree. They were really big on their ancestry their family line. Some of them could trace it all the way back to Abraham. Some of them could trace it all the way back to Adam. And it was a big, big deal. They would stand and argue about whose pedigree, whose ancestry was the most impressive based on the people who were in their line uh, of ancestors. And Paul acknowledges here, that's, I'm explaining this because some of this stuff we're going to read in a moment is not going to make sense unless you see what he, where he's going here. Paul acknowledges that he honestly he had greater reason to boast than anyone else if those things really matter. If those things mattered. So here's where in verse 4, here's where he goes. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law faultless. Now, all of that doesn't make much sense to us unless you, again, get the perspective of Paul. And all that history, all of that pedigree, all of that qualifications don't mean much to us other than to say that Paul had a perfect resume to brag about. He had a perfect resume to brag about in the back. Today, it might sound more like this. I was born to Christian parents. I was in church the first Sunday of my life. I've never missed a Sunday of church my entire life. I was a charter member of this church. I taught Sunday school for 40 years. I've been in a group all my life. I tithe on every penny I ever made. I sang in the choir. I volunteer every week. I don't cuss or chew, and I've never dated a girl who do, you know? That's what we do. We give our list of qualities, how we're better than everybody else. Yours may sound different than that. But it's this sanctimonious attitude a lot of us have it. And we can always look down on somebody else and criticize them because they don't have the same belief system or qualities that we think that we do. And in fact, this attitude is present in every religion. Every religion. It's present in every society. It's, pre it's present in politics as well. We're the good party and you're the bad party. It sounds like this. I don't see how any Christian could be a 
Republican. I don't see how any Christian could be a Democrat. We have the high place, right? We have the high ground. It's us versus them. We are better than them. I don't know about you, but that kind of is convicting to me sometimes when I think about how religious sometimes that I think. Now, Paul wasn't trying to brag here. He was trying to be honest. He was the best of the best. He had a perfect pedigree. If anyone didn't need Jesus, it was Paul. He was as perfect as anyone could be. In fact, he said, based on the law, I'm faultless. He just didn't have any faults, basically. But he had been smug and proud and arrogant and smarmy until he met Jesus. And then he realized that all that he had didn't amount to anything. It didn't really matter. What his goodness didn't matter because it didn't even compare to Jesus. You know, Jesus dealt with this attitude, the, the same attitude Paul had. He had plenty of conflict with religious people. The Sadducees, the Pharisees uh, of that day, he had plenty to say about the attitude when he was on, here on the earth. He was not impressed with people's goodness, with their ancestry, their pedigree, or anything else. In fact, he saw it as a barrier to faith instead of a, instead of a replacement of faith. It was a barrier of faith. And Paul figured this out too, because even after giving that whole line of his qualifications and how good he was, he said this, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing, surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes in from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and, and participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. So this was Paul's testimony. You know, your testimony tells who you used to be, what Jesus means to you now, or what Jesus did and now what your life is like. That's what a testimony is. So Paul tells what his past used to be, what it used to be like, and what Jesus did, and now where his hope and his focus is. Paul had everything. He had all the respected people, everything, and instead of bringing it to God, it drove him further from God. And he made horrible mistakes in his past. He made some horrible things. He fought directly against God. But God had mercy on him, and God called him into his family and as a result of that, Paul's life changed dramatically, not in a good way initially. He lost everything. He lost his status. He lost his friends, his peers. He lost his position. He lost his income, his security, his 401K. He lost everything, including his family, more than like. Do you ever hear any comment in the Scripture about Paul's family? None. Obviously, at one point, Paul was married. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, which meant he was married. He had a wife, and his wife either died or perhaps she divorced him. More than likely, his family had a funeral for him. You never hear a word about Paul's physical family. It's interesting, you know, what, that was, what happened to it. And now, not only having lost everything, he's homeless, jobless. Now he's in prison. But here's what he says, but I have Jesus. And he is better than everything. He is better than everything in the past. In fact, compared to Jesus, the rest was garbage. It was garbage. In fact, that word that he uses there is not just garbage. It's like, uh, it's like excrement. It's everything. It's waste. It's worthless compared to Jesus. 
He has gained Christ Jesus. Now his righteousness is not from his own goodness, but it's from faith in Christ. Instead of status and pride, he just wants to know Christ, the power of his salvation. He wants to participate in the sufferings of Christ and become like Christ in his death so that he can share in Christ's resurrection. This explains to us why, why Paul can have true joy. It explains to us why Paul isn't worried about whether he ends up in jail or whether he's killed or tortured or whether he's set free. He doesn't care. He just wants to be with Jesus. Now, let me clarify something here. Don't be confused. Good works matter. A good life matters. It really does. A legacy of faith, it matters. Your service matters. Your giving matters. Your faithfulness matters. But those things just don't save us. Jesus does. Only Jesus saves us. And really understanding that reminds us that, that we're never going to be good enough. Jesus is enough. Our goodness will never be enough. So we have this perspective that he says, picking up in the Scripture, not that I have already attained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And at some point, excuse me, and if at some point you think differently, then may God, then to God will make it clear to you, only let us live up to what we have already attained. You know what, with all the things that Paul said, in fact, at one point he said he was faultless, which basically means he had kept the law to the letter. But as good as he was, he acknowledged he was not perfect. He was not perfect, especially compared to Jesus. He had not arrived at the goal, but he was in hard pursuit of Jesus. He was pressing toward the goal. He was, that's the terminology they used about running a race, pushing all yourself as much as you have. He wasn't letting the fact that he couldn't be perfect keep him from trying to be perfect, but he also wasn't depending on his own goodness to save him. Only Jesus would do that. He had forgotten his past. That's a remarkable thing to think about. He had forgotten about all of his good things, all of his good traits, all of his skills and abilities and his goodness, and he had also forgotten about all of his bad things, all the mistakes he had made. He had put those behind, and now he was pressing toward the goal of being like Christ, which was what he, what he and you and I are all been called to do. What Paul's talking about here is about growing in Christ, about reaching maturity in Christ. You know, growing is one of the three values that we have here at Journey Church. Our values are connecting, growing, and sharing. And usually they happen in that order where we connect with Christ, we connect with the body, and then we begin growing in Christ, and that's a, a long-term thing. And as we grow, we understand how important it is to share Jesus with others. But growing is one of our key values here at the church. We grow past our immaturity, and we grow past our own independence, and we give God control of our lives because we're made for so much more than we currently are living in life. Here's a couple of verses that are important that speak of our growing. First, uh, 2 Corinthians 5 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone the new has come. That's what we just talked about in Christ. We put our old behind us. And then the second verse is that there at Philippians 3.16, only let us live up to what we have already attained. 
In many ways, these two verses kind of summarize everything the New Testament has to say about life after salvation. That once we're in Christ, once we're saved, God sees us as a new creature. It's not, uh, note the use of the past perfect tense in these verses. The old has gone, the new has come, and we've already attained that. We've attained that, uh, that, that, uh, that newness. We don't make ourselves into a new creation. We have been made into a new creation through Christ. It's not a process that we undertake through our hard work and our self-sacrifice. Our, our new creation is not even something that happens over time through careful submission to the Holy Spirit. It's already happened to us. We have received this gift, this new creation. Now that we are a new creation, what does Paul say that we're supposed to do? Now let us live up to what we have attained. Let us become who we have been called to be. You know, a long time ago, I saw a study that, that was kind of eye-opening. It was about the difference between our condition and our position. And it said that whenever we give our life to Christ, our position goes from being lost to being in Christ. We have been made perfect. We're a new creation. Our condition, though, lags behind oftentimes, and sometimes that's the challenge in life. Our condition is always moving. Our position doesn't move, but our condition always does. And one day, as we get more like Christ, as we gain uh, ground and we become more like Him, our condition grows. But one day, when we are with Christ and made perfect, our condition and our position, are, they match. We are perfect in Christ. Until then, we are called to live what we have attained, our place in Jesus. We have become the children of God and heirs of Christ, and we've been seated with Christ at His right hand. The Bible says that above every authority, every power, every name. And what Paul's saying is, now that you got that, let's act like that. Let's live up to what we have attained. Let's live to be the best that we can possibly be. Now, how do we do that in perspective of our topic today? When you've made mistakes, let me just throw out a couple things that will help you practically. First of all, put the past in the past. You cannot change the past. There's no way. Your successes Count your personal goodness as garbage compared to Christ. Don't rest on your past laurels, what you used to be, what you did, what you've done. Those things are great. If they, you were a believer and you gave glory to God because of them, that's wonderful. But do not count those as mattering today. And your failures, <clears throat> deal with your failures, put them behind you and move past them. You have to do that in order to have joy in the future. Accept responsibility for your failure Assume responsibility, show remorse. The Bible calls that repentance, godly sorrow. Repair the damage if possible. Restore trust in the people that you betrayed, and then focus on renewal. You have to look forward and not back. It's paralyzing to look backward. Do you remember the story in, in the Bible about Lot and his family? They were living in Sodom and Gomorrah, and when God was about to destroy those cities, uh, he told them to leave and go and don't look back. And you probably know the story that Lot's wife, she missed that. She longed for what she was leaving behind, and she looked back, which was a big mistake because she turned into a pillar of salt. And I assume she stood there until she melted into the ground. But looking back is paralyzing in whatever the issue in life. Your goodness or your, your failures, don't look back. Believe the best is yet to come. Believe that by faith... Uh, you're going to be what God wants you to be until you experience it by sight. Understand that God has a greater future for you than your past. And we have, to, we have to rush to grab that. Paul says, I'm pressing toward 
the goal to win the prize. I'm rushing toward that. You see, God has joy in your future that's much greater than any joy that you've ever had in your past or your present for that point. And he offers you salvation, this gift that you must receive and that you must experience. And then whatever you have been given, your salvation, your hope, whatever you've been called up to, let's live up to that. Let's grow into that, what we've been called, what we've been given. Let us live up to that which we have, been, have attained or what God has given to us. And when we do that, we'll have joy. We will have the joy that Paul had. It seems almost overwhelming that Paul could have gotten past his past, could have forgiven himself for hurting, killing believers. I'm sure he ran into people on a regular basis that he had impacted their lives, maybe killed family members. And yet he was able to not only receive God's forgiveness, but forgive himself and move forward. So I hope that's encouraging to you. Whatever you've done, I'm sure it's not as bad as Paul, all right? To understand that God can forgive your past. He can give you hope and joy in your present and more in your future. I hope that's encouraging to you today. And if you have not given your life to Christ, all these promises are for those who are in Christ and only those. So if you haven't done that, I would love to have a conversation with you about taking your first or your next step on your journey toward Jesus.